Welcome to the broadcast. Every Arizona homeowner's best friend. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the house. Your weekend wake-up tradition. Come on around back, Arizona. It is Saturday morning. 8 o'clock, the outdoor living hour. We start a brand new month, the first broadcast of April, which means we're talking farm fresh commodities. Agriculture in Arizona is a $23 billion industry, although uh, I, I don't know, adjusted for inflation, I think we're like a, a, a $200 billion industry now. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> We've got Julie Murphy, the uh, spokeswoman for the Arizona Farm Bureau in studio, and you always bring a special guest, one of our local farmers and ranchers, and our goal is to tie into uh, the listening audience what's coming out of our current farms, crops, ranches in real time and what uh, items to look for so you know you're buying local you're it's fresher uh, better grown and you're supporting your local your local farmer yes thank you Romy for always having us on we love doing this and you know beef is our one of our largest commodities it flips flops between dairy and beef and <clears throat> beef is what we do in Arizona to produce quality beef is amazing and so I brought two of my favorite ranchers in studio today, Andy and Stephanie Smallhouse, um, known them for some time, and <clears throat> they have a ranch that is now what 140 plus years old, I think. Close to it, yeah. Close to I it. Think we're at 139. But 139. who's counting? So, <laughs> yeah, but who's keeping track? Uh, who's keeping record? But I have to say, I'm kind of proud of myself. I was that close. But anyway, um, <clears throat> the other thing I want to point out, because Arizona beef is one of our largest agriculture commodities. We also produce enough beef here in the state of Arizona to feed more than 8 million Americans. But since the small houses on their Carlink Ranch have been doing it for 140 years, not you two specifically, <laughs> but the previous generations, you've fed a lot of people. And so, Andy, I kind of want you to give us a little bit of a lowdown about your history. Oh, well, um, it's sort of neat. I, I mean, I have a real passion for it. I, you know, went to school for it, range and animal science. And uh, and uh, my wife, I don't think she knew what she was getting into, but uh, we uh, <laughs> we we farm and ranch. And, and uh, we're <laughs> way back when, actually, the my family marketed direct. They, well, they marketed a lot. They had contracts to the military, and that's why they got in the business. And uh, uh, beef was... Uh, um, uh, a, a commodity that are high in demand in those days and uh and so we're and they they actually had their own slaughterhouse and uh then we did away with that we sort of downsized i've actually increased back the size of the ranch and now we're trying to market direct again <laughs> which is sort of crazy because everything's sort of going full come full circle but um we we feed uh close to probably 12 11 12,000 people depending on what the average consumption is um, wow. uh, with our ranch. Um, with what you produce. With what we produce on our ranch alone. So um, that's... And it's all been on Carlink Ranch. Talk about sustainability. If your son pursues ranching, your son or daughter, that would be the sixth generation, correct? Yes, that's correct. I'm fifth generation. And it's actually really exciting times, I think, because... The technology, we, you know, people don't think of agriculture ranching as, as using technology, but agriculture uses some of the highest technology, you know, whether it's farming or ranching. And 
And I mean, there's still stuff you have to do manually, of course, like building fence and so forth. But we're doing a lot. We're using a lot of technology like DNA testing with our cattle where we we can tell what the carcass is going to come out like pretty close. And it's getting more and more accurate in between the EPDs, which is expected progeny difference of animals and the um, DNA testing. We DNA test a lot of our heifers, wow. and that tells us what their carcass merit gives us a good idea what, rather than having to, in the old days, you had to actually um, process them, pull the hide off, and see what your marbling and tenderness was, you know, and so it was sort of a guessing game. But now um, there's a lot of tools that um, we have that are they're exciting to be able to use. And Romy gets to go home with some beef from Carling Ranch. I'm a little bit uh, jealous, but I guess I need to get my butt out there or Although something. Although I think, I think I've heard you talk before. You raise your own beef, don't you, Romy? We do. Good I memory. Thought so. I thought yeah. so. But, 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 but I'll take well, yours. Don't feel, well, don't, don't, feel bad. don't feel bad when you, you taste ours. And then you think to yourself, oh, what, am I, what should yes. I be doing differently? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Well, I have another question for you. It has to do with longevity. Just last year, Carlink Ranch received... Arizona Farm Bureau's new program recognition, the Century Ranch recognition, that was given out during our annual meeting, which takes place in November. So, and either of you can answer this question. What do you think has contributed to the longevity of Carlink Ranch? Besides some of the new exciting things you're telling us about genetics and DNA testing and all that fun stuff. Well, I, I have to first, I have to say my wife. Because oh, whatever, whatever. <laughs> she does all the politics, and there is a lot of politics, believe it or not, people don't realize, involved with uh, ranching and, and regulations and so forth, and she she's really more important than, than I am, I feel, on the ranch. But um, uh, another answer to that question would be the diversity. I think we have um, like five different businesses that are surrounded around the ranch and farm, and uh, we've we've been we've diversified over the years and uh and and i think that and you know and and my dad always you know and you know i trained me to sort of think ahead he was always thinking ahead by um like he cleared a bunch of farmland along the river there and and uh and and that helps um us during droughts and so forth and and just uh preparing long-term thinking years down the road is sort of kept us going. So you're always looking around the corner. One of the things I'm struck is you talked about the diversity, and that's one of the reasons. So you not only have your cow-calf operation, but you have the mesquite wood business. You have the cactus. Talk about longevity, because sometimes you can't sell those (laughs) three-foot cactus for what? (laughs) That's really a business for the next generation. We're starting (laughs) it, and then maybe they'll benefit from it. So you're one of the first. Uh, This will be interesting for the listeners. The first commercial-scale saguaro cactus nursery growers. Am I saying that right? (laughs) Well, yeah, I wouldn't say one of the first, but, I mean, well, yeah, there's not a whole lot known about it because um, most of the – most of the cactus are harvested off a of property, moved from one property to the next, and, and there's not, uh, we're probably the largest scale um, that grow cactus from the seed. Um, Amazing. And we make our own mulch. We're learning as we go, but uh, we're trying to increase the growth rate, but we've, we have uh, we have about 150,000 cactus altogether, but like Stephanie said, they're most of them are pretty small. In there. Well, and really, really, what we you know we saw the advantage we saw in adding the cactus to our ranching business is that 
you know, beef is a commodity, which means we don't control the price of it. So what the consumer is paying in the grocery store, we don't set that price. That that's that price is is you know months and months away from the last time we see that animal. And so um, we needed to we needed to invest in something for the future that we could control the price of. Um, we set the price of how much we want to sell those cactus for, actually based on what it costs us to grow them, which beef doesn't work the same way. <laughs> and uh, and they don't need a lot of water. So in Arizona, looking into the future of what our you know our cycles might look like in terms of moisture, um, that's something that uh, you, know, you asked that question about longevity. And I think that from my observations, I've learned so much about Andy's family in the last 20 years that every generation has been progressive in thought of what to expect for the future. And so in order to do that, if you're thinking generationally, you try to put into place things on the operation that may not benefit Andy and I, but they certainly, hopefully, if we do it right, (laughs) will benefit Johnny and Hannah. And so it's things take so long to do when you work with natural resources that you really have to think ahead of time. So... You're always looking around the corners, what strikes me about it. You know, on that point, um, and you having come into the ranching business, Stephanie, basically when you married Andy, because that's not your background. So it, obviously it was new to you until you met Andy. Talk about the experiences of meeting him and now your ranch life. You're going to need more time. <laughs> it's too early on a Saturday morning to talk about the experience of, of uh, meeting Andy. But uh, uh, no, actually, you know, I feel like almost like it's at this point it's been, um, you know, I've lived on the ranch longer than I haven't lived, you know, on the ranch. And so uh, it's just sort of ingrained into me. And it was uh, it was a le- it's it's still a learning curve. Like I still am learning things about. Uh, the ranch operations and things that we do. and um, But, you know, my background is in natural resources, so it was a natural fit for me um, in terms of, you know, we live pretty isolated. Um, and so you have to really kind of appreciate being out in the sticks by yourself and find appreciation in, in um, you know, the environment around you, not necessarily, you know, you don't find entertainment like people do in town, let's just say that. <laughs> so, but it's it was a natural fit, and I love it. And, uh, yeah, it was... Uh, it was an unexpected turn in my life, but I'm glad that it that it happened. That is neat. The, let's talk a little bit about forage crops because that's actually the commodity for this month. Well, most obviously cattle can't live without the right grasses and forage crops. You do grow some crops also. What are the crops that you grow, Andy? Yeah, we grow um, wheat, oats, barley, uh, alfalfa, quite a bit of alfalfa, and uh, mainly crops for some sorghum Sudan in the summer we'll be getting ready to plant um, Sudan and sorghum Sudan Um, mainly crops for the cattle or crops to produce hay Um, all of our crops right now um, are to feed the cattle for our naturalists and our hikers that are listening if uh, they're out and about what kind of grasses in southern Arizona because that's basically where Carlink Ranch is what kind of grasses would they run into that cattle really like that grow naturally. Well, we have. Uh, I've seen him eat prickly pear. They're not picky. <laughs> yeah, they are <laughs> picky. <laughs> Thank goodness. No. Yeah, we have probably thirty different grass species. You know, there's a lot of grama grass wow. that I could go on and on. But uh, um, one thing that that we do to help manage our um, grasses on the range is our farmland. Actually, um, we've gotten national awards on our range management because. Uh, we're able to pull our cattle down, most our cattle down during the summer 
the growing season of the most of the grasses we have on on our range is our warm season grasses and so the best way to reproduce those warm season grasses is to let them go to seed so we pull the cattle off the range during the month you know after about the monsoon season and let them go up to seed so they all go to seed um, ideally and then we put the cattle back on there which basically plants the seed you know uh, and and you can use cattle as a real tool to manage to to better manage the ranges range awesome. line. We're talking with Arizona Farm Bureau. Uh, we we've got Julie Murphy, the spokeswoman in, and local farmer ranchers, the st- small houses from the Carlink Ranch. We'll be back right after this. Oh, how lovely cooks the meat! Oh, how lovely cooks the meat! <laughs> when I get back home to eat, oh, how lovely cooks the meat! I smell it far away, and I thought of it all day. She's cooking the meat for me. What a meal it's gonna be! That's perfect. Cause well, I, I had steak fajitas last night. I had steak for lunch yesterday. I love steak. Steak is the best. And that's actually a music, a great introduction, because we want to talk about the quality and the taste of Arizona beef. Arizona is actually really known for the quality that they produce. Um, and I'm struck by how some people have become connoisseurs in, in trying different breeds and stuff. And... Um, so my question to you, to both of you, I'll just toss it out to both of you. Why is why are we so good at beef production here in the state of Arizona? Well, you know what? I'll talk about like the environment part of it, and then Andy can talk <laughs> about the actual animal part of it. But I think we're so good at producing beef in Arizona because we have a controlled environment, right? And so we have so many days of sunshine. We have a pretty uh, mild climate, which means we don't have to worry a lot about parasites and pathogens and things like that. Um, so we have very ha- healthy cattle in that sense. Um, Andy was talking about the grasses when we went to break. And, you know, I was just recently visiting with North Carolina um, young farmers and ranchers, and they kept saying to me, you know, how do you ranch out here? And I'm like, actually, it's not that difficult when we get rain because the nutrient content of the grasses is much higher than what you would see in the Midwest where they just have like a monoculture of wheat or or whatever. And so environment-wise, it's actually a really good place to raise grazing animals that are used for human consumption. Um, so on that side, and then of course those nutrients translate into the into the beef. So Andy, yeah, that's a good description. I mean, everyone always asks, well, why why do would you want to ranch in Arizona? You know, because uh, one that I talked about the diversity of plants, so that we have, uh, you know, they also eat shrubs and forbs, and we have and we can grow if we get rain, we can grow feed year round where most places can't. And, uh, you know, I've talked to ranchers that have actually moved from Arizona to, you know, um, east or, and, and they think, oh, well, there's all this grass, but it's, it's usually just a few grass species and the cattle, they're surprised because they're like, oh, there's grass everywhere. The cattle aren't doing as well. Well, it's just like any diet, the, you know, the better, the more well-rounded you have, the, the, the better health the animals and then of course like stephanie said the dry climate that's why all the feedlots and dairy big dairies are wanting to come to arizona because we don't have to deal with the diseases and so forth that that they do where they're in a wetter climate um you know our quality hasn't always been the top you know of for the country you know of course iowa and places are known for their genetics but i think uh ranchers that have made it this far are looking a lot more into DNA testing and, and the genetics and so forth um, of the animals and 
and and I mean there's there's a wide array of of what people consider quality you know people you know that like grass-fed um some people like grass-fed beef and and we can you know grass feed them year-round here and so but um there's i think i think the quality's um gotten a lot better in the last uh, few years the a three ounce serving of lean beef is an excellent source of protein supplying more than half of the protein most people need each day so basically we need to keep eating beef well, you know, I would say three times a day is not enough, but <laughs> no, I think, you know, that people underestimate the amount of nutrition you can get from a very small amount of beef. Like you said, it's three ounces, right? So like, if you think about the pandemic, everybody was taking zinc, right? Because they were thinking, okay, I'm going to boost my immunity, boost my immunity. One of the best things about eating beef is the amount of zinc that's in it. And so you can eat that beef, you can get the immune booster, you can get the energy booster from your vitamin B. Um, you know, of course, you've got the iron and the protein, which builds muscle. So I... You know, I really think that beef has been underestimated um, over time in terms of the nutrition value that incorporating it into your diet every day. Well, and they even talk about how those first five years of our life, uh, incorporating the right meat proteins is actually good for your brain health. Absolutely. Absolutely. For kids don't, that in developing countries that don't have access to that, that's sometimes one of the reasons why they are really challenged with their test taking and other things. So... Beef, uh, beef, it's what's for dinner. That's <laughs> what, the, what they say. That's from the American Beef Council. Beef Council, yes. Yep. We want to give credit where credit's due. So, um, Stephanie, I know this has been front and center with you and part of what you do as president for the Arizona Farm Bureau. Talk more about the efforts to get more regional meat plants operating in this country. Well, we've done a lot of work on that, um, both in Arizona and nationally. And the fact is, is that we saw during the pandemic, the supply chains were tested in terms of people being able to access local food. And so there's a there's a resurgence or a surgence of um, people wanting to, to have food produced locally. And so the, the issue is in the Western United States is there's not a lot of um, large processing facilities. Most of them are in the Midwest or this um, Texas, different places like that. And so at Farm Bureau, what we've been doing is we've been working with our policymakers to find out what kind of funding it would take, what kind of rules changes it would take in terms of inspection and getting more inspectors out on the ground. Um, you know, what works for a small processor, you know, or what works for a big processor often doesn't work for a small processor. And if there's a silver lining, uh, that's one thing that I have been appreciate about the pandemic is it's waking everyone up to realize we need to bring and source more things local, not just food, but, you know, manufacturing and the, the resources we have here locally. I've had burgers well done and rare. Now I got one that ain't even there. She got no response from ringing the bell. And that's when she started to yell. Where's the beef? He stays up all night finding these tracks. I love them. <laughs> hey, we can't find them, he makes them. <laughs> yeah. That's Gary D behind the glass. Thank you. And we've got uh, the Small Houses in from Arizona Farm Bureau members. And uh, Stephanie, you're actually the president. You're now in your third term. And Julie, I'm, I'm going to hijack this interview Go for, for just a moment because I've got a question for both Andy and Stephanie. You had kind of talked a little bit earlier. You had mentioned the saguaro cactus and how that kind of a, you know, you you set your own price for that, but you don't set your price for the beef that's done at the grocery store. I've been 
hanging on to this article from February that was posted in the AP uh, out of Des Moines. The U.S. Department of Agriculture forecast for this year projects farmers will make $10 billion less than last year. And you were saying you don't set the price for the beef, but costs for everything are going up. Lance uh, Lillibridge, president of the Iowa Corn Growers Board, says his fertilizer costs are up 300% yep. for herbicides and pesticides. Crop production products are up 100 to 150%. He's expecting to spend 190000 more in fertilizer alone this year. And he said, you don't set the price at the grocery store. So that... That it's just kind of gets eaten, and it's, it's not like he had <laughs> $200,000 of profit last year that he can absorb this year. Right, and so um, the the prices of fertilizer is a very scary thing, and also the supply, um, because of the fact that we're going to have some serious import issues with what's going on in Ukraine, because so much fertilizer is produced in that part of the country. So that's going um, to exacerbate the um the inflation costs, but also fuel. People don't remember that. I mean, everything in farming requires fuel. And so the prices that you're seeing for gas, they're even higher for diesel. And diesel is used for everything in farming. And so um, so those prices are largely being absorbed by the farmer, um, depending upon what the global and national commodity markets are doing, which they have no control over. But, you know, uh, like in our in our in our case with the beef, you know, we sell some direct and we sell some on the commodity markets, and so that's part of that diversification too. Is that um, you know, there's there's a place for for all of these markets in our food system because those that are sold in the commodity markets, as we said, are, are less expensive. We don't set that price because it doesn't actually match what our input costs are. If you sell direct. Um, you have more of a chance of saying, this is how much it cost me to produce this pound of beef, or this is how much it cost me to produce this sweet corn. Um, you know, if you're selling direct at a farmer's market, you can set the price a little closer. But it's definitely going to impact all of agriculture. This next year is going to be a rough year because of the fact that everything that goes into producing food, is the cost is going up. So, And even though across the board, and American Farm Bureau Federation, giving them some props here, they have an, uh, an entire team of economists that assess this. Even though across the board you see rise in commodities, cotton, the, the last time I checked was $1.30 a pound. I mean, you never hear your, of that. We get excited. Your, your and, dad was a cotton farmer. Yes. What, what? Oh, he's, he thinks it's awesome, but he said, Julie, look at the fertilizer prices. And that's kind of what American Farm Bureau assessed is that. What was the lowest price per pound you think he remembers? I, if Kevin Rogers, former president of Arizona Farm Bureau, is listening to this, he'll probably correct me. But I think at times, even in just the recent decade, it's been in the 50s. and Yeah, it hasn't been that low long since it was 60, 50 cents. Yes, yeah. 60 cents. And so farmers get excited when it's 80 cents. So when you see in the spot markets, it's $1.30, you think, oh, well, rich farmers are really going to take it away this year. That's not the case because of that increase well, of fertilizer and pesticides. Yeah, for example, beef is everyone, their first question, because the consumers, you know, they go to the store and the beef prices are up. So the first, they're like, oh, you must be doing great this year, you know, you Beef price, I see that beef prices are up in the store, but most ranchers are selling live animals. And uh, our, we just sold a load um, a few weeks ago, and we got uh, less than we did last year at this time. And our inputs have doubled. on So the, the prices are about the same or less than they were last year. And then you consider fuel and corn and 
seed and fertilizer, everything has doubled. So we're actually making half as much money and, uh, you know, we're not making what you see, you know, in the stores. And of course, that's why we're trying to market direct as much as possible. And we're partnering up with someone to try to get a slaughterhouse built ourselves. And it's sort of been a lifelong goal to do that. And kind of like bring the 140-year-old farm yeah. or ranch back to full circle. And to that point, um, we've just alluded to it earlier, if you're retail or direct market beef, you can set that price. But they're basically pricing it against the reality of the costs to grow and raise that beef. And then if you don't have enough of these slaughter plants to process the beef, then you have this backlog. So it's kind of a challenge. We can't just overnight convert to retail beef. You can't just overnight convert to a different crop because of all of the infrastructure you have in place on the farm. Well, essentially, you know, I, when I go into classrooms and I try to explain certain concepts to kids, you know, I say, you know, you're, you bought that cheeseburger for 99 cents from McDonald's, but it took us two years of investment. And we're just the first link in the chain. Yes. <laughs> and you just bought, you know, a part of that for 99 cents. So there is definitely a disconnect in between what it costs to produce food in this country and what consumers are, are paying for it. And so I think that um, it would be great as we shift to more local supplies and people buying directly from the farmers, whether that's uh, specialty crops or beef or whatever, that the consumer recognize that the price that they see might might be like, wow, that's a lot more expensive than the store. But it actually reflects more of how much it costs to produce that food. And I think it gives people a better idea of how much work goes into it and how difficult it is and the costs of the inputs and things like that. So, And I have anecdotal evidence to this desire to access more local beef. So during the pandemic, when you saw store shelves for the first time in a dramatic way empty, then... People were chucking out all of the direct market beef producers on Fill Your Plate. And we went from about 25 beef producers that are listed on Fill Your Plate to over 50 in just that 12-month period because a lot of our beef producers that had not previously been doing the retail sales of their beef said, you know, we got to get in this act because their network was saying, can't I buy some beef from you. Well, and during the pandemic, we were getting phone calls from people that we had never sold beef to that were just like, hey, you're a rancher. Do you sell beef? Can we buy beef? And, um, you know, the food supply chain is incredibly interesting to me because during all of that craziness, you know, and so we were like, yeah, we sell beef, but, you know, it takes a while to get them ready. <laughs> you can't just walk out to the field and pick the one you want. And and then the other part of it is this processing space. And so everybody was backed up. And so it was like, yeah, we'll reserve you some beef. And then six months from now, or even eight eight or 10 months, it'll be ready because there just wasn't, there aren't enough processors in Arizona to handle that. And, you know, and then you look at people ran out and bought a bunch of beef and then nobody had a freezer to put it in because then nobody could get a big, you know, because they're like, oh, this is a lot of meat. You know, where do I put it? And so it's like, it was kind of crazy. Do we ever get this fixed? I know, you know, with what you do with Arizona Farm Bureau as president and all of our county, you know, the other neat thing about the Farm Bureau, it's a grassroots organization's really the county level volunteer leaders, farm and ranchers, are what drive some of this policy. But do we get some of the stuff fixed? I think after being kind of deep into this whole supply chain issue and the price uh, disparity and things, people see stuff happening in the news about the packers. I think that the people that have the most power to stabilize the food system, both on price and on supply, is the consumer. 
if they educate themselves on how the food system works and how the supply chain works, then they will make better decisions in terms of um, you know, what you buy, where you buy it, uh, how much you're willing to pay for it. The only way we're going to maintain, you know, we can build a lot of lo- local processing um, in the Western states and in Arizona, but unless the consumer demand stays steady for that local supply, those those processors are going to have a hard time staying in business, which is why we don't have a lot here now, right? And so the consumer has to has to basically maintain a strong demand for local food. And if they do that, then we'll see a lot of benefit to the family farm and ranch, um, no matter what it is that they're growing, because it will eliminate all of the middlemen, basically, in between who's growing the food and who's buying the food. You're have a greater connection to the farmer and rancher, which is one of my goals with what I do with Arizona Farm Bureau is trying to help the public connect with the farmer and the rancher. So let's flip a little bit to, uh, besides talking about some of these important things in the food system and consumers and their impact and power, um, you alluded earlier, Andy, to some of the environmental awards you won. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, Why are you guys so focused on conservation? Well, I mean, no one is more uh, dependent on the natural resources, really, which um, for some reason, you know, a lot of people don't think about is no one's more dependent on the natural resources than we are. Um, And, you know, I went to school and studied it and I grew up and live, I've lived and breathed, breathed it. And, and, uh, you know, if I ruin the natural resources, my kids won't have a future like Stephanie was talking about earlier that, you know, and I was talking about that we always think way ahead. So it's to our benefit to properly manage the natural resources um, for, uh, so I can pass it on to my kids and, and, um, and for my own benefit. And, and it's just, you know, and part of raising um, good beef is, you know, not just genetics. It's a lot of it goes into handling the beef. And, and there's, there's, a, a, there's a connection between quality beef and, uh, and how you handle the, the docility of the animal, how, how calm the animal is. The, the calmer the animals, the better. You know, people get the misconception that we want to chase cattle and run them around. Well, when you chase cattle, you're losing money because you're losing pounds of beef. When you bruise the animals or do anything that can, uh, it'll, it, it, it lowers the quality of the beef. So um, it's to our benefit to, uh, to raise good cattle and, and and treat them well. Treat them well, and 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 treat our natural resources well. It it would be stupid not to. Just like any business, you know, you don't want to. That's that's our product. We we don't want to hurt harm our product. You uh, know. And I can vouch for that one. I've watched you guys move your cattle. Remember when we came out actually to capture some video? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you you guys take care of what you've got. And I imagine for. I'm getting a vibe that Johnny, I think, maybe wants to ranch. Is that right? That's the youngest. So Hannah is their daughter and then Johnny. And Hannah's now in college and Johnny's freshman or sophomore in high school. He's a freshman, yes. So You need to update yeah. the pictures on your website. Yes. <laughs> I got the impression just, they were still under 10 yeah. years we old. We just got new ones. We just got new ones. <laughs> yeah, actually, Hannah... It, it's funny. She went away. She's at Nebraska University, of Nebraska, and she uh, she's actually becoming more interested oh, in, cool. uh, in 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 maybe coming back to the ranch. And I think, I mean, I think there'll be room, hopefully, for both of them. And and uh, as you know, with Stephanie and I, we work as a team. And and like I said, uh, 
they're two opposites and Johnny's a hard worker but has very little patience for dealing <laughs> with politics or anything so Hannah Hannah um, is is has a lot of patience she's a good people person and uh, so it's interesting it'll be exciting to see but you know one of the reasons I was so interested in coming back to the ranch is because my dad encouraged me to go out and do other things and try other things and work other jobs and and uh, which takes a lot of discipline for him to be able to do that but um, when he knew that it's it's a tough business and and you have to love it for yourself not for your parents you have to I agree with that love doing it so uh um you know and that's that's why we do it i mean there's not very many generations or our age that want to stay in it they want to stay yeah hours are always so short, Julie, and I appreciate uh, you being with us this Saturday morning along with the small houses. And uh, you had mentioned earlier, Andy, just about the technology and farming. And I had a couple articles <clears throat> here that I wanted to, that I had just saved to talk about some of the technologies that are coming out. So water's obviously a big issue. Pure, you know, we have a, a lot of water. <clears throat> it's just not all of it's usable. And you hear about desalination and uh, you know, ways to, to produce more fresh water. Well, there's a new startup out of Mississippi called Glanris, and it is a water filtration system made out of the biggest ag waste product, which is rice holes. So hmm. all of the rice that's produced, uh, my family are rice farmers in Louisiana, uh, outside of a town called Lake Charles. I, well, from like Houston to Pensacola, you could throw a rock and hit one of my family members. And <laughs> <laughs> this this use of the rice holes, it's uh, most of them are burned, but they take this and they turn it into a filtration system that's 20% more effective. It takes a third of the time, and it's one-tenth of the cost of carbon filters. Wow. And it removes uh, what they call forever chemicals, PFAS. So it's taking something completely natural and filtering water back to its, you know, you couldn't do that without agriculture. And they are now talking that some of these desal plants or even these processing plants to purify water are a lot more economical to put together and start using. So I think it's a technology for ag that might be much more common maybe another decade or two from now. And then there's another thing called solar areas, which is mixing solar and agriculture where they're putting up these big solar plants and underneath it is where they are moving their sheep herds so then they don't have to mow underneath it and they put it on areas that don't need you know like a lot of our bermuda here it needs sunlight to grow well they've put underneath it plants that don't rely so much on sun to grow so it feeds the sheep you don't have to mow it and it's kind of merged it and they're growing uh this farm out of colorado he's actually his 24 acres now has over 3,000 panels, and he grows tomatoes, squash, kale, and beans beneath these solar plants. So it's, you know, it, it isn't on the back end of technology. It's actually the front end of technology. Yeah, we have a lot of that renewable energy here in Arizona. Uh, more and more, especially every dairy, new dairy that's built has a methane digester to it, and, and a lot of our old dairies have built these methane digesters. So we actually have quite a bit of renewable energy being built and done here. I wanted to bring something up, Andy. You kind of mentioned it on the break. You were talking about for ranchers that can have smaller herds, you can have a just 
talk about that a little bit. One of the neat things, it's it's almost like uh, the craftsman that has a small craft shop. They're really you're really creating some unique beef. Yeah, I mean, our we I don't look at it as comp- competing against Tyson or JBS or something like we're trying to build a slaughterhouse, and I think some people take it wrong because they want to compete against the big, uh, bigger. Uh, packing houses and so forth but we we have uh something that they'll never do is well one is good you know we think we have really good quality genetics but it but it's also the aging process that 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 affects the taste of of the beef you know and the naturally growing not growing them on hormones and so they grow slower and uh and then aging them for 14 to 21 days and uh you know with the pandemic we've you know i i almost every customer that has bought beef from me is is a repeat customer and then they tell their friends and and uh, so i think we have a niche market and so i look at it as like a craft product that i don't think that um we're really competing against the uh the the bigger um packing packing plants so what's fun i can sit down then and have that very specially crafted beef from the carlink ranch and i can have my microbrewer brew too yeah. your craft beer and your craft Cra- beef your craft yeah. beer and craft beef and so, to get that beef i'm gonna say because you're not going to but you go to carlinkranch.com and you click shop and then you can select beef because like julie said you'll have more things you got the cactus and the uh, mesquite wood uh products that people can also find there but the the one thing down here slow grown flavor and i wanted to elaborate just quickly on that uh we do raise our own and something that we have learned from our butcher and is we won't harvest anything that's not 16 months old. And in fact, we, we like it even a little bit older than that, where a lot of these big producers, you know, their volume, they got to crank it out, crank it out, crank it out. They might be harvesting in 12 months. And there is something different. Everyone's like, this is the best. What do you do? Yep. You just let the animal live longer. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Thank you, Small Houses. This has been Thank a great you segment. Thank for having us. Yeah. Andy, Steph, Small House, uh, and you can go to azfb.org, sign up for your Farm Bureau membership. It's only $60 a year. You support lo- local agriculture. Julie, fillyourplate.org? Yes, fillyourplate.org to find some of these beef producers like the Carlings. 